the name of Jesus in our lives. We think about what we once were and the direction that we were once headed in and the power that it took to be able to open up our eyes and our hearts and to see the folly of who we were and where we were headed and then to see, Lord, the, the option, the opportunity, the invitation that you extended to us to live an entirely different life and to be indwelt by you. And we just acknowledge tonight that our lives, such as they are in this wonderful process of sanctification, is all due to the power of the name of Jesus. And we are grateful for what you have done. We look forward to what is yet future for each of us in this regard. We thank you for the place that your word plays in all of this and the sanctifying us by your word. And we pray tonight, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you would further sanctify our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our everything, away from selfism, away from the world, away from the temptations of the world, and completely unto you, into the life that we've been created for. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts this evening for your love for us, your goodness to us, your commitment to us, Lord, how faithful you have been to us. And we just bless you. And we do so, Lord, with a very candid confession that we know we don't see 10% of what you do in our lives, but that portion that we do so leaves us in awe of how gracious you are and causes us to want to live to the praise of the glory of your grace. Bless us now as we study your word, we pray, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Well, that didn't sound very Christmassy to me, uh, I'll tell you. So. Good evening to you. There we go. Okay, there we go. I feel a little bit like Mr. Rogers, but I had to do what I got to do with you. Uh, Lamentations, chapter 2 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And uh, wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. And yet, again, I think you'll be fairly lost without a Bible on Sunday evenings. Uh, you'll be most of the time, but on Sunday evenings especially as we try to cover a chapter or two on these, on these evenings. We remember as we uh, had a break last week with the Christmas program, and wasn't that a wonderful <laughs> Christmas gift, the best, really, yeah, that uh, we got to enjoy and, uh, but the book of Lamentations is an epilogue. It's a postscript to the book of Jeremiah. And we remember that it's made up of five dirges or five uh, funeral songs that are written by Jeremiah. Uh, all but one of them is an acrostic. And uh, each one of these songs, that each of them constituting a chapter, uh, is really a song of lamentation or sorrow uh, over a particular uh, issue. And uh, that is the destruction, the needless destruction of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, we looked uh, last time we were together to just look at uh, the, uh, the consequences of sin. Again, so uh, negligently portrayed for us within the culture, but never hidden from us uh, in the Word of God. The consequences that come with sin and these listing of 22 or so different things that uh, always are the consequence of sin and would be enough to make anyone want to steer clear of it. But the greatest consequence to sin is what uh, Jeremiah begins to focus on now in chapter 2 by the Holy Spirit, and that is uh, what it costs us in terms of our relationship with God and what it forces God to become in our lives that He never desires to be as His first choice uh, when, uh, when our sin uh, as Christians or as His children forces Him to become our uh, judger or our chastiser, a disciplinarian, when he would uh, much rather not uh, take that role. And so chapter 2 speaks of uh, the righteous anger of the Lord behind his judgment uh, of Jerusalem, a key phrase that you see throughout this uh, second poem here in chapter 2, especially in the first stanza, is the two words, he has, he has, he has. And this particular chapter contains about 40 descriptions of 
divine judgment and as it fell upon every single part uh, of uh, Jewish life and uh, in the home and religion and society, uh, affecting them in the physical and the mental and the emotional, certainly uh, in the spiritual. And here uh, we have, as he lays this out, as he does through the entire book of Lamentations, is the realization that what happened to Jerusalem in this judgment uh, didn't occur because of some attack by an enemy from without, uh, but they, uh, what was behind it was the judgment of the Lord Himself. And no one can win in a battle against God. Uh, you take a, a two-year-old or a four-year-old that's wanting to do, you know, a, a rebellion against a parent, and at that age they have no hope of, of being successful in that rebellion with a, with a determined parent at all. And, uh, you know, take it off of the graph in terms of the success that we'll have in, uh, in being rebellious uh, against God. And Jerusalem uh, didn't f- uh, fare uh, uh, any better. It is interesting and I think important to realize as Christians that it was certainly true of Jerusalem, true of all of us as children of God, we can never be defeated from without. The defeat that came upon Jerusalem did not occur because of the Babylonians or the strength of the Babylonians or so forth. Uh, they fell because of, uh, of their sin. We can only be defeated from within when we go into a life of sin and then force God then uh, to judge us. And so here we have this uh, ode to the anger of the Lord against uh, Jerusalem. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, uh, with a cloud in his anger. So uh, his anger, uh, this overcast over the entire uh, city. He cast down from heaven uh, to the earth the beauty of Jerusalem and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. And so in God's wrath he allowed Uh, the footstool uh, to be uh, destroyed. The footstool in the Old Testament is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant uh, that was in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and then uh, ultimately within uh, the temple. And uh, the phrase there is he he speaks about the beauty of Israel. Uh, It's a reference to the temple uh, as a whole. And so God allowed the temple, even the Holy of Holies, to be ransacked by the Babylonian uh, army, and uh, he did so in order to uh, bring an end to the hypocritical worship of of Judah at the time. And it really is astonishing when you uh, realize that God, the, the sin of Judah had gotten to such a point uh, that God, when he looked at what was happening at the temple, uh, that he looked at it and he said, I would rather have Babylonians in this temple looting it, tearing every bit of gold and silver off of, uh, of the walls, looting out of every single instrument, including, uh, you know, the ark and all of the rest of it. I would rather have them in here looting and destroying my temple than to have one more Jew come in here and uh, pretend that they're right with me and worship uh, and offer hypocritical worship to me. And that's astonishing how far the, the uh, children of, of Judah pushed God related to that, uh, that that would be his, uh, his druthers, that would be his, uh, his choice. And yet that's exactly the, where they went and what God was communicating uh, uh, to them. He was going to bring an end to this uh, farce that they called worship, uh, even if it meant the destruction uh, of his temple. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all of the places, dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. And so he swallowed up in his judgment. He threw down not only the city of Jerusalem, but all of the uh, cities, large and small, uh, that made up uh, Judah. One of the reasons that he did that is, you remember, as we were going through Jeremiah, that the entire land of Judah, every city, God talked about idols being on every corner in every home. And so he he allowed uh, the entire cities to be destroyed because they had become uh, centers, individual homes, cities uh, had become the center of the worship of idols rather than the worship uh, of, of the Lord. And so uh, he cut off the people's 
uh, ability to kind of fund the worship of these idols by uh, bringing the judgment upon the cities. And he has cut off in his fierce anger every horn of Israel. A horn in the Old Testament is a symbol of strength. He has drawn back his right hand. The right hand was uh, considered the hand of strength from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring uh, all around. And so this speaks of the fact that God lifted his protection from off of uh, Judah uh, in the face of her uh, enemies, and uh, he lifted his strength and protection. He broke the strength of Judah to defend herself. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I thought by the time I got to where I am now, I've walked with the Lord for a while and, uh, and uh, getting a little bit older, that this would be getting considerably easier. Uh, and it isn't. It's getting uh, harder as time goes on. Uh, and, but one of the great things about it is that I am, and I know I speak for you as well, I am so dependent upon Him that it can't even enter into my mind to go off and be a goofball in some way and move away from him and, and even run the risk of him lifting his protection off of my life, uh, let alone then bringing his judgment in uh, on top of it. And so how much we need him in the spiritual warfare that we are uh, in, the, in the middle of and, and, uh, and who would want to face uh, life as a Christian and and the demonic realities, the physical realities of this world uh, with, uh, uh, with God having withdrawn his protection. And he was forced to do so uh, with Judah. Verse 4, standing like an enemy. And that word like is, a, is an uh, interesting one that he uses there. Uh, he, standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of her palaces. He destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation uh, in the daughter uh, of Judah. So in his wrath, God says he was forced to become uh, the enemy of them and to begin uh, to oppose them. And so he, he was forced in their, in their sin to actively start to chasten them and to judge them himself. Again, you see, as I emphasized in reading verses 4 and 5, the repetition of that word like. It's important when he uses the word like, uh, Jeremiah does. It's a qualifying statement. Uh, God never became their enemy, uh, but he became like their enemy uh, because he was forced to judge them and resist them in their headlong uh, rush towards sin. Uh, but when God chastens us and he disciplines us in our, our lives, he never ever becomes our enemy in doing so, though, though it may feel like he has become that. It's always an expression of love. Whom the, Lord's, who the, whom the Lord loves, uh, he chastens. And, uh, and so he does in our life. He scourges every son whom he receives, though it can feel like uh, he's become an enemy uh, to us. And then in uh, uh, verse 6, he has done violence to his tabernacle uh, as if it were a garden. And it's kind of the picture of if you've ever rototilled a garden uh, or rototilled something in your backyard, it just goes through the ground and it just tears everything uh, up. And that's what God allowed the Babylonians to do to the temple, to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, so the, the poetic kind of imagery he has done a violence. It was him that was behind it. A violence to his tabernacle. And I think it's important to realize that it was uh, his tabernacle. And he did so as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place. Uh, and again, uh, notice that very important phrase. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. He's brought an end to them. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. And the Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. And they have made a noise 
in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. And so here again, you have the image of the Babylonians making a racket, a noise uh, as they are uh, destroying uh, the temple. When it talks about the fact that he has done, in verse 6, he's done violence to his tabernacle, uh, that in the King James, it, it is, he has abhorred his uh, sanctuary. And the word abhorred there, or done violence in the New King James, it means to reject with abhorrence. It means to reject with uh, uh, detestation. Remember that the, taber, uh, the tabernacle and then the temple itself when the, the model was given to, Jeremo, uh, to Moses, I'll get it right, uh, given to Moses, uh, that it was a model of the heavenly scene. It was a model of, uh, of uh, the sanctuary in heaven, how God was worshipped uh, in, in heaven, and the plans for the tabernacle and then the temple that came right from the heart of God, from the very hand uh, of God. And yet the sin of the people caused God to detest it. He detested, he hated the temple because of what it had become uh, in, in the sin of the people. And so again, he, he brought an end uh, to all of this hypocritical worship that was going on. He brought an end, as he mentions here, to all of the sacrifices and all of uh, the singing. When he says, again in the beginning of verse 6, he has done violence, notice those next three words, to his tabernacle. Uh, then you uh, notice uh, the, the next sentence, it says, and he has destroyed his place of assembly. The temple was about him. Uh, the tabernacle was about him. Going there was about worshiping God. And somehow, over the course of a long period of time, among the children of Judah, this became about them. Uh, this, they, they weren't thinking about God. They weren't thinking about whether these services that are held at the tabernacle are services that bring pleasure to God. Can he attend and enjoy himself? And I think it has, it has something very, very good to say uh, to us today. I don't say it and I don't make mention of it in the sense that I think we need any kind of special uh, correction in this regard. But I don't think that we can be reminded enough that when we come to church, especially in the self-centered context of the United States of America in the year 2017 and almost 2018, how everything is so man-centered, but that this is not supremely about us. This is supremely about God. He is the star. He is the God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He will never allow us to outgive Him. He will never allow us to give Him the worship and the praise and the adoration and the glory that is due His name without then something coming forth from Him and meeting needs within our lives. But the focus is whether I come into an assembly like this on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or two or three or gathered together in his name, it doesn't matter if I leave this place and I say, well, you know, that didn't do anything for me. Who cares? So what, you stupid little American? Did God enjoy himself? Was God praised? Did you worship him in spirit and in truth? Did you give him the glory that he deserves, not only for all of the blessings that he puts within our life, but for the very breath that he allows each and every one of us to breathe? This is all supremely about God. And they turned the whole thing on its head to where they were going to temple year after year for decades and completely lost sight of God, that this was his, it belonged to him, it was for him. And I don't know how, about you, and I, and, and I mention every so often, I could get up in here and rail every week if I wanted to do that, and, but I, 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 I don't have an inclination to. But I am a Christian, and my eyes are open to trends within the body of Christ in the United States of America, and I, I urge you, I, I exhort you, I beseech you, to be careful of any environment that you walk into and you have a sense that this is supremely about me 
and not supremely about God. I have the consciousness that the worship team that is leading me in worship is more concerned about my experience than glorifying God, or that the person who is delivering the sermon is more concerned about the individual hearing the sermon than whether that sermon pleases God and it blesses Him and is faithful to Him. And things we talk about this morning is that the Jews took the law of Moses and turned it completely upon its head. I think we're in danger of turning church and the worship service completely on its head within our culture. And it's not ebbing, it's growing. This is about God. This is not about these things that I get in the mail regularly as a pastor, to go to this particular conference and that particular conference and how to put some kind of a program together that will do something to the people so this church can grow and so all of our visions and desires for it can be accomplished. I would rather be shot than fall prey to that kind of nonsense. This is not about me. This is not about us. It is about God in worshiping Him and then Him doing with that worship and with the church. Whatever he decides to do uh, with that. But that's the focus. And I think it's very important to be reminded of that. I tell you, I walk sometimes into different environments, Christian environments. I'm not talking about pagan environments. I expect to be robbed there. But I walk into certain environments, and I, I, get, I always get a very itch, uh, uh, uneasy feeling when I get a sense these people are trying to do something to me rather than something for me. And this is about me. This is about growing. This is about me coming back. This is about me liking them. This is about me, 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 me. You fill in all of the blanks rather than blessing God, blessing Him with our worship, worshiping Him not only in song but in the study of the Word, and then to give Him all of these things that He desires of us, and then let Him add His voice and His amen uh, to it. And they had lost all of that and until it had become nothing about God. And so God speaks to the fact that he's been forgotten in the very institution, in the very structure that had been established to be the one thing in all of the world that isn't about us. And so I say, be careful about that in this hour in human history because it always, always, always ends in disaster. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, in the seven letters that are written by Jesus to the, the seven churches there, uh, the, the, uh, many Bible students view the final four churches that are listed in those seven letters as being characteristic of the four main groups of uh, uh, identities of Christians that will be in place at the time of the rapture of the church. And, uh, and the reason is, is because to each one of those four churches, Jesus speaks of his return. And one of those churches is the church of Laodicea. I mention it every so often. But here's this church that is, I, 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 I am rich, I am filled, I am, I am, I am, I am. And Jesus is on the outside of that church knocking to get in. And in that church, they don't have the slightest idea that there's something wrong with that picture. And that's going to be a portion of professing Christianity in the time as the, as the, as the rapture uh, approaches. One of the reasons that I, I say this is, is I, I, I don't, I, I say it not only for our health as Christians and as those that attend Calvary Chapel of Modesto, but I say it so that it is in our hearts uh, to, rec to recognize what is truly of the Holy Spirit in the lives of others, other men and women who are serving in the body of Christ and other pastors and other churches so that when, when we see them uh, doing and desiring to honor God and making God the center of attention, that we will recognize that, that is, they're doing that right. And, uh, and to recognize that again, because I do think that I think it's ebbing and it's important to realize that. I think that the passage also speaks to us uh, of the fact uh, that it, it is, we have to be careful 
of protracted, long-term lifestyle sin in our lives. Uh, and, and how an individual church, again, I don't speak because I think that this is a, a, a particular need of, of our fellowship, but a church can come to a place uh, where the standard of holiness becomes so low in the lives of Christians and sin becomes such a dominant characteristic of the majority of that congregation that when God shows up, he says, I can't enjoy myself. Everything that's being said, all that's being uh, preached, all that's being sung, all of it is hypocrisy. I know it has no basis in, in reality within their hearts. It does not mean, and I am not saying, that when we fail and when we sin, that we shouldn't come to church and worship God. What I'm talking about is a long-term protracted getting settled into sin and saying, I'm going to hold on to this sin, and I don't care what God has to say about it. I'm going to practice it, and I'm going to go to church anyway, and God just has to deal with it. God will deal with it. But the problem is, is if you lower the standard of holiness and what God expects of us, and, that, and it reaches a tipping point within a church where all of a sudden this thing is just a game. This is just about us uh, pretending that, you know, we've got some kind of uh, born-again experience and some kind of resurrection life experience uh, with God, then ultimately God is driven from the church. And whether that happens in the life of a church at five years or it happens at 50 years or it happens at 100 uh, years old, uh, there's the danger of it. And, and to be careful of that, that what I bring into this room Sunday by Sunday or into a home fellowship, uh, I, I, am, uh, I am affecting God's ability to enjoy that, that worship service. And there is, there is no reason not to, given uh, how readily it is to confess our sin and to receive God's forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness to be living a life of, of hypocrisy and coming to church. The interesting thing, again, about a church is that uh, it, it, it can happen and it can look like, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're smoking, we're doing great, it's all of that and everything, and then at some point it hits a critical mass and everyone shows up and begins to wonder, what happened to God? I don't get the sense that He is inhabiting our praises here anymore. Uh, I don't hear His voice through the Word anymore. I'm not uh, receiving anything from His throne as I go to this place, and it's a terrible, terrible tragedy when it happens, and it was unnecessary. And, uh, and for all of the consequences that we would bear out of that, the greatest casualty in all of it, of course, is God. You think about anything and everything is worshiped all around the world, everywhere that we are in the world, and yet these little places like this, a church or a sanctuary, or, or in a home, or wherever we might be gathering to, to worship the Lord. And these are the lone places that belong uh, to Him. Uh, okay, Lord, this is where we glorify You. Haven't noticed where You've been glorified anywhere else, but in this place, we're going to glorify You. And it becomes holy ground as a result of it. Well, uh, we'll go on to verse 8 here. Uh, otherwise, we'll, uh, 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 you know, two or three more of these, and we won't even get to chapter 3. Uh, but, but they are important. Verse 8, the Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying, and therefore he has caused the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Uh, he had allowed them to build the walls of Jerusalem. And he had been a part of that. And those walls were strong, and they were straight, and they were true. And, uh, and God says, now, because of all of this, I'm going to go in. And with the same care and detail uh, that I allowed those walls to be built, I will tear them uh, down uh, in, in this judgment. God can bless us with things. He can give us things. Uh, he can put our lives together with incredible supernatural detail to 
we look and say, look at the life that we get to live. But then if we force him to judge us, as Judah did, he will come in and with the same detail with which he put together the wonder of the life that we live, he can uh, uh, tear that uh, down uh, uh, brick by brick and board by board. Verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground, and, her, and he has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision uh, from the Lord. Uh, there's something worse than hearing the Word of God, even, the, even in its most uh, exhortive forms, and that is when God says, no, I'm not going to talk to you uh, anymore, which is what He did with the prophets. And the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground, and they keep silence, and they throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow uh, their heads uh, to uh, the ground. And so he destroyed their physical gates of the city, and then he removed their uh, uh, political and spiritual gates in the form of the kings and in the form of the princes and, and, and uh, the prophets, the, those people that were to be in the lives of the people were to be spiritually uh, as protective on a moral level and a spiritual level as the physical walls of Jerusalem were to be on a, on a physical level. And God takes and, and uh, He uh, judges all of it. And then in, uh, in verse 11, uh, Jeremiah uh, uh, continues here with kind of his as he describes himself, his eyes uh, fail with tears, kind of his tear-filled uh, observations related uh, to the destruction of the city. Uh, Jeremiah is absolutely uh, heartbroken to the, the deepest heart of his, his life as he watched this city uh, be so needlessly destroyed. My eyes fail with tears. He's, I, I just, I, I, I can't stop crying, and, and, and I, I don't know if I have, you know, any more tears. He said, my heart is troubled. And, and you know that uh, if you've ever had to deal with a person that is far from God and rebelling against God, and you see the consequences of what comes into their life, wave after wave after wave, how it, it uh, hurts a person's heart to watch it. He said, my bile is poured out uh, on the ground. This was affecting him it, it, it is in his deepest part of his being because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants, they faint in the streets of the city. Uh, here, these infant and child, uh, children, they're saying to their mothers, where is the grain and the wine? And as they swoon like wounded from starvation in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out, as they die uh, in their uh, mother's uh, bosom. And so what produced the greatest heartbreak for Jeremiah was not to see what the consequences of God's judgment were upon the adults. They had brought the judgment on them. But to see the consequences of the decision of the adults, uh, what those consequences uh, had uh, upon uh, the children, now roaming the street as he describes them, uh, in hunger. Here they are, they're begging for food, and, and you've got them dying of starvation. I don't know the last time you watched a child die of starvation. Jeremiah saw it every day. He saw it in every direction. He saw children die at their mother's uh, breast, coming to the end of their life in their mother's uh, arms. And, it, it, and it's always the case where when uh, you have the adults in a family or in society or in a nation, they make choices based upon uh, their own lust, their own desire, their own wisdom, and so forth. It's always the children who are the ones that become uh, the greatest tragedy uh, as a result. And it's so important, again, and this goes so contrary to the selfism of our culture. Um, I've been pastoring now for 30-some years, and uh, when I first began, it was almost, uh, uh, I mean, people, uh, marriages stayed together for the sake of the children back then. 
Um, not all of them, but a significant portion uh, of them. You virtually never had a, a mother uh, abandon their children to a father in order to go out and party and go to the clubs and all of this kind of stuff. And then little by little, this became uh, the norm in, in kind of, uh, of, of the progression. And, and then uh, where instead of uh, parents and adults looking and saying, what decision is best, not the easiest for me, but what decision is the best for the children? What is the, uh, what is, uh, you know, uh, that's the thing that needs to rise to the supreme place. And they had lost that entirely. All that mattered was their idolatry, was their sin, and the children could just be damned, so to speak, related to it. And they ended up being in exactly that, uh, that status. Very often people will uh, come to me, whether it's a couple or as an individual, and say, what should I do here in this situation? And I'll always say, this is what God uh, directs related uh, to this. And then in the middle of this whole thing where it would be easiest for you to take a left or a right, or, uh, but the consequences of that would fall uh, firmly upon the children, I said, look at this situation and do what is best for your children in line with the Word of God. And it goes increasingly against the culture. Look at how, uh, how we have just thrown our children within this culture to the dogs. We don't protect them from anything. Uh, in, in the absolute obsession with adults being able to look at millions of pictures of pornography on the computer, uh, we cannot bring ourselves as adults to find some kind of a way to protect children from uh, this very addiction. Or we can move right on into drinking or uh, drug abuse or whatever else. We, selfism is awful. <clears throat> again, in this regard, and how we are as a culture just addicted to my pleasures as an adult <clears throat> and too bad about the kids and what they have to deal with. And this was the prevailing attitude there uh, in, uh, in Judah. The single greatest gift that we can give our children is to be a parent who loves God and obeys God. That's the greatest thing that we can provide uh, to our children. And whether uh, they grow into adult life and we die and go to heaven and we aren't able to leave them even two quarters to rub together, but they were able to see that uh, in someone and see it in us and that they were raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, we have given them something far greater than any kind of uh, wealth that we could uh, leave to them. And they robbed their children of this, and the children became a casualty. How shall I console you, uh, Jeremiah says concerning the city, to what shall I liken you, a daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare uh, with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? And here is Jeremiah. He looks, and again, it's, it's something that most of us have seen in some relationship within our life. Uh, he looks and he says, what can I say to you? in, in the, the brokenness of your condition and the fullness uh, of the judgment. Have you ever looked at a person and then even spoken to them and, uh, and, and just say, man, it's a bad decision. It's a wrong decision. It's a wrong decision. It goes against God's word. It's going to be a train wreck. It's going to be a train wreck. It's going to be a train wreck. It can't be anything other than a train wreck. And then it becomes a train wreck. And then what can you say? What consolation can I offer you now except to repent and turn to God and allow Him uh, to rebuild? But this is what Jeremiah was, uh, was declaring uh, to them. How can I comfort you in, in your condition of rebellion against God? How can I tell you that your sin will have a different end than a train wreck? when I know that it will be a train wreck. And so Jeremiah, here he is, he, he's a priest like us. He loves people. He loves the people he's ministering to. He loves his family like we love our family. He wants to be able to go to Christmas dinner and say something nice to them. 
say something encouraging to them. But in, in their rebellious condition, he said, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to find something I can say to comfort you, that will, that will uh, you, you know, console you. But I, 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 you, your sin, the decisions that you've made, the consequences of all of that that you've been warned against over and over again, it leaves me speechless at this point. It, it, that, is, that is an awful thing to do to another human being. And I mean, so often we look at it and say, well, the greatest consequences that are being born are being born by the person who's making the disastrous decisions. Maybe that's true on some level. But so often the person in that position does not realize the unbelievable pain that they are causing to uh, the godly around them, the ones that love them and want to to spare them the disaster that they're uh, in the middle of. Your prophets have been have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity. They haven't exposed your sin or rebuked you for your sin to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies uh, and uh, delusions. And so here uh, Jeremiah laments the false prophets of of Judah who refused to expose the sin. Uh, of, of the people of Judah through all of these decades that uh, their sin was going on. Everybody was practicing it. Everybody knew it. But somehow, these priests found a way to get up into a pulpit every week and somehow avoid the elephant that was in the room, that everybody's involved in sin, everybody's involved in idolatry to somehow make this kind of a, a, a religious get-together, but, uh, but not only not expose the sin that people were engaged in, but then uh, also to give them a kind of a positive message from God week in and week out as they live their life uh, in, in rebellion. I, I, and again, I think this is absolutely epidemic. Uh, today. I wouldn't say that it characterizes a majority of churches, but it is, it is big enough today uh, that it is, it is now uh, noticeable. Uh, when, I, when I first became a Christian, there was what was called the positive confession movement, word of faith movement, and it was mostly centered in Pentecostalism. And it was about, basically, uh, all this Christian life was about you. It was all about you being healthy, you being wealthy, uh, you having your best life now, and whatever the kind of deal. It was you, 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 you. You grabbed these promises from the Bible, you held them like a, gu- a gun to God's head, and then uh, you forced Him to deliver on these. It was, it, was the, it was putting the individual first, ahead of God. God was just uh, the means to an end. He was just a genie. He was just a genie in this, this Christian thing. And then a positive confession movement, uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, because of the excesses that it went into, everybody will be healed if they have the faith to be healed. Everybody will be rich if they have, you know, the faith to be rich and so forth. It went into disrepute, and it, and it, uh, it, it, it didn't quite burn to the ground, but it, it ebbed in terms of its significance. Oh, but in the last, I'd say, but five to seven years, it is resurrected. It has exploded. And it has exploded among the young, among younger pastors. It used to be kind of these ancient pastors that would be preaching these things. But again, the messages in, in the middle of a culture that is filled with sin and corruption, and now all God is is this, you know, path to your best life now, or, or, or uh, all of the sermons are about you. Uh, they're about your happiness. They're about your fulfillment. Nothing about uh, these things happening in the context of God. Again, uh, I... It, it, it troubles me because I see the same kind of stuff going on as I see here related to, uh, to Judah, and I see it increasing, and, and it, is, it is alarming. Christianity is about God. It is about Him. He is not a genie. And it is about us worshiping Him, and, and, uh, and it is also about leaders rebuking sin as we go through the Word of God, exposing it in our lives and calling us uh, to uh, repentance. And, and so it, it, it's important that we have those voices within our lives. I hope you have, uh, either by means of 
this pulpit or by means of uh, sermons that you download or friends that you have within your life, and, and I trust that it's so, and uh, related to my own life as well, that we, ha- that we have some portion of our life uh, where we, uh, people can speak into our lives and, uh, whatever they desire to speak into our lives about our spiritual con- uh, condition and not where we uh, cherry-pick this and say, I'm only going to listen to these people or these podcasts or be around these people who will only affirm me in uh, my self-willed life or my sin-dominated life, but to allow, uh, to, to examine who I make my counselors and who I make my influencers in the Christian life. And they became very much censors related to that, and they found a way to, to marginalize people like Jeremiah and just, uh, you know, keep the, uh, the messages in, in the podcasts downloaded of these kind of people. And what they needed was the entire priestly caste uh, and prophets to rebuke all of them before it ended in the disaster that it was sure to end in. And then as he goes into Verse 15, uh, uh, verse 15, all who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city, as they mock and they scorn, that is called the perfection of beauty, uh, the joy of the whole earth? So, ah, so this is what a Christian is. Look at him in a pile there in, in his own vomit. Uh, all of your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth, and they say, uh, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day uh, that we have waited for. We have found it, and we have seen it. And so the mocking of, of, uh, of Judah's enemies at, at her uh, judgment. And then verse 17 The Lord has done what He purposed. He has fulfilled His word, which He commanded in days of old, He is thrown down and not pitied, and he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your uh, enemies. And so Jeremiah is bringing out the fact that God had not been unfair in his uh, judgment of Judah or Jerusalem. And why why was this judgment not unjust or unfair? Because he had warned them all the way back in the Law of Moses and the book of Deuteronomy And he'd said over and over again in the Word of God, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And if you do these very things, and he describes them in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, I know you're going there. I know you're going to do these things. And and it is a path that is cursed, and you will force me to judge you. And God will always be faithful to His Word, whether it is in the form uh, of blessing or in the form of chastening or judgment. And so the key is to stay on the blessing side of all of that. But Jeremiah here readily confesses on, uh, on behalf of, of, of the nation uh, that God was not unfair at all in doing this. In fact, he had warned them hundreds of years earlier in the law uh, that this would be exactly the case. And then in verse 18, uh, Jeremiah gives an exhortation to uh, the, the city of Zion, to Jerusalem, and he cries out to them, uh, their heart cried out to the Lord, uh, O whale, uh, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. He called upon the city uh, to weep and to lament. The Bible teaches that godly sorrow works repentance. Uh, There's godly sorrow, and then there's just sorrow. Uh, If you go to the average jail or the average prison and you talk with any inmate there and you say, are you sorry about being in prison? Oh, yes, I'm very sorry uh, about being uh, in this prison. And uh, maybe more often than not, they're not uh, sorry for what they've done. They're simply sorry for the consequences that they've ended up in in prison. And and that's what God is speaking about here. Don't be sorry. He's calling on them to repent on a deep level. Don't just be sorry for what you see, Jerusalem, uh, a heap of ash in front of you. Don't be sorry just for the consequences uh, of, of the sin. Be sorry for the sin itself, and that's what he calls them uh, to do. It is a, a godly sorrow uh, that will then result in repentance, but he calls them to a godly sorrow uh, first, and I mean uh, strongly. Give yourself no relief to your crying. Give your eyes no rest. 
and then arise, as, as He calls them to weep and now calls them to pray, arise, cry out in the night at the watches, uh, at the beginning of the watches. In other words, see, pray to God without ceasing, through, not only through the day, but even into uh, and through the night. Pour out your heart like water before the face uh, of the Lord. Be sincere. Pour out everything that you're feeling to God and, and uh, that you want to say to Him. Lift up your hands uh, toward Him. And the lifting of hands is a universal uh, sign of surrender. He's saying, surrender your lives to the Lord uh, once again for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every uh, uh, street. And then in verse 20, uh, here uh, the, uh, Jeremiah records Jerusalem's or Zion's response and appeal to God in the light of all of these things that uh, she has uh, uh, been through. And so she declares, see, O Lord, and consider, here's the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, post-destruction crying out, uh, to uh, see, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Uh, and they begin to cry to God, uh, should the women eat their offspring? And they did. They ate their own children during the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, un uh, uh, so unwilling to give up sin. I, it, do you believe that there's a monster in you? You don't need to shout out. I believe there's one in me. Maybe it's why God made me a pastor. I believe that sin could take me to a place where I could do the, virtually the unthinkable. So when I read this thing and I read about women eating their children rather than giving up their sin and turning back to God for the sake of their children, I know I'm a descendant of the same gene pool. I, came, I come from the same Adam and Eve. It is in me. I hope it is small within me. I hope it is buried very deeply within me. But it, it is within me. It, it frightens me what man is capable of, but more personally, what I am capable of and, 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 and able to convince myself of, of doing and being uh, apart from, uh, from God. And, 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 and here is the, the scariness of where, uh, where they went. And I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. Uh, that, uh, in, but they cry out to him, See, O Lord, and consider to whom you've done this. Should the women eat their offspring? And they're blaming God. God, how could you let this happen? How could you let the Babylonians come and lay siege to this city and create circumstances in such a way that women are eating their children in order to stave off, uh, uh, off uh, uh, starvation and to eat the children that they have cuddled. And then uh, the second complaint, should the priests and the prophets be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? God, how come you're letting all of our priests and prophets being slain uh, in the very temple by these Babylonians? God, what are you doing? This is un unfair, the accusation that they're making against God. And then their complaint uh, goes deeper. Young and old lie uh, on the ground in the streets, Jews dead everywhere, their bodies in heaps on any street you want to look down. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me in the days of the Lord's anger. There was no refugee or survivor. Uh, those whom I have uh, born and uh, brought up, my enemies have uh, destroyed." And so here is their appeal to the Lord, uh, and this appeal and the cry that Jerusalem it was in their hearts against God in, in light of the destruction. And yeah, you can see that a lot of pent-up bitterness and anger in their heart that was very, and, and very, very close uh, to the, the surface. And so uh, in, in reading these verses, we don't want to kind of conceal the bitterness uh, of this appeal. They're very upset 
with God that God would allow these things uh, to, to happen. I think that one of the things as you read the book of Psalms and certainly as you read the book of, uh, of Job, uh, there is this uh, a place for pouring our heart out uh, to the Lord. He's the one place that we can pour our heart out to Him that's absolutely safe. And we can even be wrong in what we say to Him. I can't tell you how many walks I've been on with God or how many times I've prayed to God. And I begin the prayer in here, and this doesn't make any sense to me, and whatever it might be and all that's going on. And when we pray, it's a discussion. It's a conversation that goes on. It isn't like I'm going to go into pray, and it's going to be my way or the highway, and I lay out this long rant to God in Jesus' name, amen, and we close it off. There's a discussion. And Lord, I don't understand, and I don't see, and why would, and perhaps you could tell me, and this and that, and then he says a little something from his word, or an impression that he puts upon my heart, and and so forth. And then by the time the prayer time is over, or the processing of it, meditating within our heart, he brings us all the way around. But he's not afraid of honest questions. He's not afraid of our confusion, uh, as long as we bring it to him, and we're willing to hear Uh, his answer, willing to have him bring us around related to whatever emotion or whatever sense of injustice we might feel at the moment about uh, about our our circumstances. And so, but uh, here they are, and and the, the, uh, the, the great mistake that they make here is that they blame God for the consequences of their sin and their uh, idolatry. And God had been speaking to them for 40 years through Jeremiah, and, uh, and, and this was the consequence of it. And you look at it and say, well, Jeremiah, why do you encumber the book of Lamentations with verses 20 through 22? You got a bunch of people whining for their sin. And trying to blame God, uh, you know, for their sin, and, and, and instead of uh, taking uh, responsibility for their own decisions and their own actions. And I think the reason, one of the reasons that Jeremiah includes it within these uh, three verses within the book is that finally, finally, it, 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 the point comes in their lives where God gets some honesty from them where finally they're talking to him and it's not acting, and it's not a religious charade. And as wrong as they are in what they're saying, and God will set them straight, and he'll be faithful to do it. But I have no doubt as they hear these complaints of the children of Judah related to God's unfairness and so forth, and then God up in his throne in heaven listening to the prayers, and he thinks to himself, ah, finally, some honesty. Uh, Finally, an end to the acting. Finally, something that's really coming from your heart, the depth of your heart. It's all wrong, but at least it's real that's coming up. I can work with that. I can't work with acting and and hypocrisy. And and so he begins now, as as they lay out honestly how they perceive things, he then you know, t- obviously, historically, we see that he took them by the hand and, and led them into, uh, into a clear understanding uh, of their uh, uh, situation. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, here, uh, this attempt, though, to, to, uh, to blame God, and uh, so often it, it, uh, it is the case. Jeremiah is going to elaborate on this a little bit further uh, uh, in the book. But if we want to have an honest dialogue with God, about anything, uh, and even no matter what kind of a depth we find ourselves in, in beginning that dialogue with Him, we'll always find that God is very eager to uh, in, engage in it. But one of the things we'll always uh, do is, and I don't know if you've ever talked with God about um, uh, something wrong He's done in your life, uh, or some wrong decision. Uh, Lord, I want to be respectful here, but. Um, that's not like making any sense to me at all. And, and uh, did you notice that this might happen and this might happen over here? I'm here to fill in the blanks for you, Lord, and, and uh, to be your counselor and, and to do all of that. And then what happens over a period of time is that we see that righteous and true are his judgments. We come to realize that, no, all of that was exactly as God needed to do and was his best for me, as hard as as it might be. And so we finish there tonight in uh, in chapter 2, and uh, and we'll pick it up in chapter 3 next time. You know, we look at 
um, I remember a song by the Talking Heads uh, quite a few years ago. I, I wasn't a fan of theirs, so I'm not endorsing all of their music. Um, but they did, uh, they did have that, uh, that one song, uh, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this uh, ain't no fooling around. And uh, a lot of times I think about that little chorus in that song, and it's kind of like an end-of-the-world siege uh, mentality related to the song. But when I think about Jeremiah, even think about present circumstances, um, it reminds me of the fact that life isn't a game. It isn't a game. Uh, walk with God is very, very serious, and, uh, and the consequences are very, very serious, as we see in the book of Jeremiah. And it's good to be uh, reminded uh, of that, the sobriety of walking close to Him and obeying His Word, I don't think we can be reminded of it enough in our current uh, culture. Let's stand together and we'll pray.